In this next part of Lecture 9, we're going to talk about treaty rights, and we'll speak about two particular types of treaty rights, both the rights arising under the historical treaties, the numbered treaties, as well as rights arising under a more modern treaty arrangement. And in both cases, what we're going to focus on is the overlap of the duty to consult with the treaty rights framework. So as I mentioned in passing when talking about Aboriginal title, the majority of Canada is subject to treaties. There are these numbered treaties that are in place for a broad array of Canada, and then there are the modern treaties which supplement and provide that the treaty rights framework is what is applicable in most of Canada geographically. British Columbia is the exception, where most of British Columbia is not and never was covered by treaties and is instead governed by the Aboriginal rights and title framework that we spoke about last lecture. And broadly speaking, starting with the historical treaties, there were two groups of these historical treaties, the so-called Robinson treaties and then the numbered treaties. And these are similar in many ways, these historical treaties, in that they provided that the Aboriginal group would see yield up and surrender their title and rights, and in exchange would be given certain rights, including in the later numbered treaties, the right to hunt, fish, and trap on the surrendered lands. And the case that we are going to talk about is Mikasu Cree. This is a case interpreting Treaty 8, which is one of the numbered treaties. The numbered treaties go up to Treaty 11. Treaty 8 is a very important treaty. As uh, Justice Binney says in, or notes in Mikasu Cree, Treaty 8 is so important because it covers such a vast amount of area. Treaty 8 covers an area, Justice Binney notes, that dwarfs the size of France. It's bigger than Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, and is close in size to British Columbia. So the treaty covers just a massive expanse of land. You may wonder, how practically do you go about entering into a treaty over such a vast territory with so many different First Nation groups that occupy that territory, how do you get all of them to agree to the same treaty? And the answer is, frankly, that you don't even try. The way these treaties worked is the Crown would appoint treaty commissioners who were charged with negotiating and getting the treaty signed, and they would go to several places in order to meet with leaders or representatives of some of the groups of the First Nations, and then they would negotiate and have the treaty signed and then go to another area and speak and make representations, but get the, the same agreement signed in that place as well. And then for groups that were never part of that initial treaty process, from that moment on, the treaty was offered as a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. You can adhere to the treaty and start to take these benefits or not, don't take the benefits, but the crown was going to act as if it had the legal right to the land and the right to govern it as it would, regardless of whether you took the benefits or not. So 
that's broadly the process. These treaty commissioners go negotiate with a few bands, a few groups, a small percentage of the people who are actually present in the area to be covered by the treaty, get their agreement, perhaps by making oral promises, which often are very important for the interpretation of the treaty. And then following that, anybody who wasn't part of that initial process can sign on, but the Crown deals with the entire tract as covered now by the treaty. And uh, as you heard, it's a huge, huge tract of land. So these historical treaties were signed up until 1921. The last of the numbered treaties, Treaty 11, was entered into in 1921. Following the entering into of the final numbered treaty, there was a range of conduct by the Crown that has in subsequent years been found to have been infringements or violations of treaty rights, and there was a disregard of treaty rights. There's a bad history of the Crown keeping its treaty promises under these numbered treaties. So the general way that these numbered treaties work is rights are provided to the treaty signatories, to the First Nations who signed the treaties, and the Crown acquires a right to take up land for listed purposes. In Treaty 8, the language is that the Crown may take up lands for settlement, mining, lumbering, trading, or other purposes. So the general framework you can think of is the Treaty First Nations have the right to hunt, fish, and trap throughout the area surrendered. And the Crown, in return, has a right to take up land take it out of that land that's available for hunting, fishing, and trapping for these listed purposes. So the Miccosoo Cree case is about a winter road. And the winter road was going to affect the exercise of the treaty rights of some members of the Miccosoo Cree. So their hunting, fishing, and trapping rights were going to be affected by the creation of this winter road. So the key question that the Miccosoo Cree case answers is how does the duty to consult that is set out in Haida, how does that apply to the historical treaties? And several arguments were offered by the Crown to say no further consultation duty is owed. And the court said, we won't accept that. The court said, the honor of the Crown underlies the interpretation and application of the historical treaties. And a part of that honor of the crown, a part of what the honor of the crown demands, is that infringements or things that may affect the exercise of treaty rights be the subject of consultation before they occur. The crown argument in response had been, we're in the treaty framework. The treaty is the complete list of everyone's rights and obligations. There's nothing in it that says you must consult before exercising a crown right under the treaty to take up land. And so therefore, no consultation is necessary. That was the argument put forward by the crown or one of the arguments. And the Supreme Court of Canada said, no, we won't accept that argument. The duty to consult doesn't simply spring from the text of the treaty, but they say in a key passage at paragraph 51, the duty to consult is grounded in the honor of the crown. 
and they say the honor of the crown is itself a fundamental concept governing treaty interpretation and application. So they're saying, look, look at Haida. What's the source of the duty to consult? It's the honor of the crown. The honor of the crown we've already recognized governs treaty interpretation and application. And then the court says this duty to consult extends into and covers crown action that will adversely affect the exercise of a treaty right by a First Nation. And then the court notes that it's not as though the Treaty 8 First Nations did not pay dearly for their entitlement to honorable conduct on the part of the Crown. Surrender of the Aboriginal interest in an area larger than France is a hefty purchase price. So the court notes, look, this is a big thing that the First Nations gave up under the terms of the treaty as they've been interpreted traditionally that the First Nations indeed did give up their rights in this area in exchange for the treaty rights. And part of what they acquired, part of what the deal was, was they would get honorable conduct on the part of the Crown. And part of honorable conduct on the part of the Crown involves discharging the duty to consult before adversely impacting treaty rights. So the big takeaway from Miccosu Cree is this duty to consult is not going to apply simply to asserted or proven Aboriginal rights or Aboriginal title, not just under these common law claims based on unceded and unextinguished rights and title. Rather, it will extend also to these historical treaties. And the Crown tried another argument on, and they said, well, wasn't all the consultation that was needed done within the treaty negotiation process itself? And the court said, no, that consultation, if you could really call the treaty making consultation, such was not the end of the honorable duty of the crown. That was not the end of the crown's obligations. Rather, the negotiation, the court said, was not the complete discharge of the duty arising from the honor of the crown, but a rededication of it. So the court is saying the honor of the crown infuses treaty interpretation and application. During the negotiation, there was not only the honor of the crown guiding how that negotiation ought to go, but furthermore, by entering into a treaty, the crown rededicated to honorable conduct with First Nations, including consultation. So that wasn't the end of the consultation process. Finally, before we leave Mikasu, I would like to point you to paragraph 63, which provides a good summary of the framework to determine the degree of consultation required in a given case. At paragraph 63, the court notes that the determination of the content of the duty to consult will be governed by the context. One variable will be the specificity of the promises made, where, for example, a treaty calls for certain supplies or a crown payment of treaty monies, or a modern land claim settlement imposes specific obligations on Aboriginal peoples with respect to identified resources, the role of consultation may be quite limited. This is the idea, look, if the treaty's already really specifically dealt with this issue, consultation may be rather limited. 
Another contextual factor will be the seriousness of the impact on the Aboriginal people of the Crown's proposed course of action. Of course, that's just the same as the Haida framework. The more serious the impact, the more important will be the role of consultation. The court notes in the non-treaty context, the strength of claim will be important. But of course, within the treaty context, you're dealing with proven claims. There is a treaty right. The court also notes the history of dealings between the Crown and a particular First Nation may be significant. So if there's a history of bad practices by the Crown towards a particular First Nation, that may impact how the honor of the Crown ought to be discharged. And the court says that the key factor in this case is that the treaty contemplates change in land use and it sees the treaty as a framework within which to manage these continuing changes in land use. And in that context where you're seeing that there's going to be changes to the land use and we're going to have to manage that, they say consultation is key to achievement of the overall objectives of the modern law of the treaty and Aboriginal rights, namely reconciliation. And it is a good idea whenever you see the term reconciliation to think of how that term is being used by the court. And at the outset of the judgment, Justice Binney says the fundamental objective of the modern law of Aboriginal and treaty rights is the reconciliation of Aboriginal peoples and non-Aboriginal peoples and their respective claims, interests, and ambitions. So if you remember, we talked about how reconciliation is sometimes used to describe the fundamental legal question of how do you reconcile the claim of radical underlying title and crown sovereignty with the pre-existence of Aboriginal societies. Sometimes it's used in the context of asking how do you reconcile with past mistreatment of Canada's First Nations. And sometimes it's used to say how do you reconcile Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal interests in a process of give and take. And it does seem like the court in Mikasu is using the last of the three framings of the term reconciliation. But what you want to take away from Mikasu, as I say, is this idea of what are these historical treaties? And you want to remember that they are going to require the Crown act honorably in their interpretation and application. And a part of that will be a requirement that the Crown discharge the duty to consult before it does something that could adversely affect the exercise of treaty rights. So the next case that I want to talk about is the Beckman, Little Salmon, Carmack First Nation case. And I like this case because it talks about how the duty to consult and the honor of the crown applies to a modern treaty. So the treaty at issue here is the Little Salmon, Carmack First Nation final agreement. And this is signed in 1997, I believe. And this is a modern, comprehensive land claims agreement, a modern treaty. It is much more detailed than a historical treaty. How much more detailed? To give you a rough idea, I checked the word count of Treaty 8 as compared to the Little Salmon Carmack's First Nation Treaty. Treaty 8, the entire text of Treaty 8, is 1,879 words. Now that's, that's short enough that if you were to do your paper for this class and you were to come in at that many words, I think that's pretty light. And this is the treaty, remember, that called for the surrender 
of territory the size of France, bigger than France. The modern treaty, the Little Sam and Carmack's First Nation Treaty, on the other hand, is 244 pages in a Microsoft Word document, 112,000 words. So it is just staggeringly bigger and more detailed than are the historical treaties. So the question that came up in Beckman and Little Salmon, Carmack's First Nation, is how does the duty to consult arise in relation to this type of a treaty that tries to be a formal final agreement and set out a complete accounting of the rights and obligations of both parties, but doesn't have the duty to consult specifically provided for. If you have a modern treaty and it doesn't set out a duty to consult, does that mean there won't be a duty to consult? And the court says no. They say that the duty to consult is a component of the honor of the crown, and the honor of the crown has a constitutional dimension, and the honor of the crown can't be contracted out of. Now, the court says that you may be able to, by contract, by a treaty, agree to another approach that will be adopted in your particular case so as to allow the purposes of the duty to consult to be accomplished so as to allow for the honor of the crown to be upheld. That's okay. But you can't just contract out of the duty altogether and say there won't be consultation and we don't have to abide by the honor of the crown. So just to summarize the facts, under this treaty, the Little Salmon Carmack's First Nation surrenders its traditional territory to the crown and receives 34 million in a right of access for hunting and fishing for subsistence on the land surrendered. So not dissimilar in its fundamental format of a surrender combined with an ongoing right to access the land as is Treaty 8. A non-Indigenous person applied for an agricultural land grant for some of the surrendered land and was given 65 hectares of the traditional territory of the Little Salmon Carmack's First Nation. Hectares are, I think, about two acres, so like a little over 100 acres of land. And this land that was given to him was traditionally used for hunting and fishing by the Little Salmon Carmack's First Nation. So the court decides that this land grant to Mr. Paulson couldn't be done without consultation. The honor of the crown could not be contracted out of, and the honor of the crown in this circumstance gave rise to a duty to consult. The court then goes on, though, to discuss the scope of that duty, and they say that given the existence of a treaty surrender and the fact that the parties didn't choose to incorporate a more elaborate consultation process, the scope of the duty to consult in this case is at the lower end of the spectrum. Effectively saying the First Nation chose to make this surrender, chose to not have more elevated rights over consultation with respect to the surrendered lands. And so therefore, while the honor of the crown applies and the honor of the crown imposes a duty to consult, we're not going to find the duty to consult is at the higher end of the spectrum. And was the duty to consult discharged in this case? And the court said yes. They said the Little Salmon Carmack's First Nation got notice and information 
of the proposed disposition of land. Its objections were made in writing, and they were dealt with at a meeting where the Little Sam and Carmack's nation were entitled to be present, and the objection to the land grant was considered when the application was allowed. So you have here an example of where you're going to be at a lower end of a spectrum, even though you have a proven interest, you have a proven treaty right to hunt and fish in this area. However, because of the modern treaty context, the court nevertheless finds that there will be a duty to consult, but it will be at the lower end of the spectrum because there's been this agreement whereby the rights have been limited. In effect, it was always in contemplation. There might be land grants given. You didn't seek to have a higher standard imposed, and so therefore a lower standard can suffice. The big takeaway, though, for Beckman and Little Sam and Carmax is not really where on the spectrum of consultation this case fell, because that would turn on the individual facts of any case. But rather, what's important is to know that even in these modern comprehensive land claims agreements, which set out in great detail how a First Nation and the Crown are going to engage in an ongoing relationship and the rights and obligations of both, even in that framework, the court will still demand that the Crown act honorably, and this may include imposing a duty to consult, even if there isn't a duty to consult explicitly set out in that treaty, a duty to consult before decisions are made, which may adversely impact the rights of the First Nation under that treaty. And that all arises from the honor of the crown. And again, this honor of the crown idea, we're going to talk about in a bit more detail in the next part of this lecture, when we talk about the Manitoba Métis case. So that will conclude our brief discussion of treaty rights. And what you really want to take away is that there are these historical treaties, there are these modern treaties. Both require that their interpretation and application be done in a manner consistent with the honor of the crown. And this does include requiring that the crown consult before taking act action that can adversely impact a treaty right. In the next part of Lecture 9, we'll speak about the Métis and Métis rights, and then in the final component, we will talk about the interaction between Aboriginal rights and the Charter.